Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Christopher Ward, Ramsey Kyrella, and Matthew Borkowski. Chris and Ramsey are co-founders of Myologica, a CRO that specializes in neuromuscular function and muscle phenotyping services. Matthew is a sales and support manager at Aurora Scientific, a company that's known for their products regarding muscle physiology, material science, and neuroscience applications. They are here to discuss methodology and best practices regarding basic in vivo, in situ, and in vitro experiments. Let's jump in. I'm going to get right into this Q&A. So first question, are certain muscles better suited to being tested with a certain technique? Chris, you were on this point, so maybe you could continue, and Matt and Ramsey, you can chime in as well uh, if you want to add. Certainly, and yes, indeed, that's the case. What the muscle size limits is the ability for us to get nutrients to that muscle or drugs to that muscle if the muscle is taken ex vivo. So really, the in vitro experiments are limited to small muscles, thin muscles, extensor digitrum longus, soleus, growth of the mouse, strips of diaphragm, what have you, that can be well oxygenated. The larger muscles, tibialis anterior, gastrocnemius, what have you, they really need that neurovascular bundle to have the blood flow intact. Okay. Any addition from Ramsey or Matt? So keep in mind that in vivo, you can also do certain muscles that otherwise would not be because of their geometry, such as the masseter. Mm-hmm. or the, the forelimbs. But otherwise, yeah, there's certain muscle groups can only be done with a certain method only, while the EDL and soleus is really can be used for with any of the methods. Perfect. Okay, thank you. Next question. Regarding the normalization with respect to cross-sectional area, Ramsey, you were mentioning this in your slides. What happens when the cross-sectional area is not uniform along the muscle? Or, you know, is there a specific way to approach how to measure the cross-sectional area. You know, what, what, can you elaborate on that? So usually the cross-sectional area is not uniform across the muscle, and what we do is take the cross-sectional area at the center. Mm-hmm. The best approach is through histology and getting cross-sectional area of individual fibers in the belly of the muscle. Otherwise, muscle mass also provides a decent normalization. And I don't know if Chris agrees with me, oh, but yeah. in general, it's, it's, the, it's by far the easiest. And the advantages of measuring cross-sectional area are only incremental. I'll chime in on that. There are a number of ways to approach estimating cross-sectional, measuring cross-sectional area, obviously. Histological measures, CT scans of the animal to measure cross-sectional area and also muscle mass. Certain muscles have certain muscle architectures. That results in muscles that are that have different what are called penation angles, the directionality of how the muscles attach into the tendon. And there are some equations that are in the literature. There's a couple of key publications that you'll see routinely cited that are used to that are used to calculate cross-sectional area when across these different muscles. And for example, the extensor digitorum longus versus the soleus versus other muscles, there are the penation angles are known, and this is a factor in an equation that can be used to calculate these. And so there's a number of those uh, in the literature, and we'll make sure to put some of those key references in the reference list that gets put online. Perfect. Okay, that's a great answer. 
Matt, uh, we've had a few cardiovascular, like researchers with cardiovascular interest chime in. And just very simply, what would be the preparations and tests that are you know, most common for those looking at cardiovascular? One thing that I think is really beneficial, Andy, to look at that we didn't touch too, on, too much upon in this webinar is, is measuring work. And that, that is something that, that researchers with a cardiovascular bent would be interested in. And the way to assess work is basically to look at the area underneath the contraction performed. So if you're running a battery of, of contractions on a particular animal, in addition to those tests that we described, work is one that you would also want to consider. And, and that's, of course, something that is included in the, in the software suite. Perfect. Okay. And I'm assuming more information on those specific tests can be found, you know, through your materials and website as well for those that have a pure cardiac interest, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And in the literature as well. We have other specific chambers that are specific to isolated cardiac preparations as well. It's a little beyond the scope of this webinar, but we've done it for many years. Perfect. Okay, coming back to muscle types, there's been a couple questions about identifying effects between slow versus fast twitch muscle fiber types. Can perhaps Chris Ramsey, can you take a lead on at a high level explaining how one would go about an assay designed to, to answer the difference between slow and fast twitch muscle? Sure. You know, in brief, the, the force frequency relationship is a good test to distinguish between fast versus slow muscle. The, not only the peak force or the peak torque that's generated at each stimulation frequency is slightly different between the two, the shape of that force frequency relationship is different between those two muscles. And that shape is based on the, both the excitability and the activation of those muscle cross bridges between the two muscles. And so if you did a force frequency relationship between the soleus and a force frequency relationship between EDL, you see distinct differences between those uh, muscles. And where this is really helpful is if you have a disease or condition where there has been a significant fiber type change, exploring that the relative position or the relative slope of that force frequency relationship is fairly indicative of the underlying differences in contractility governed by that fiber type change. And so this has been explored in many different publications from laboratories, including ours. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. For the full webinar, please see the link in the description. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.